We're in Acts chapter 12, and we are about to finish the first half of Acts. Now, I realize that my math skills are suspect before you, and I realize that there are 28 chapters in Acts. But this is the last chapter in which Acts is Peter-centered. From this point on, we will begin to follow more intently the Apostle Paul. Peter will make another short appearance, but this Acts chapter 12 is the last time in this book that we will look uh, intently at Peter as the main character of the narrative. And I think that's important as we think about this text, as we see what God is doing for and to Peter. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Let's read together Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him... He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak round you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself... He said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to the answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it, upon our hearts. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from this text, that you would remind us of your great sovereignty, of your great love, and of the great work of Jesus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As I've said to you before, the book of Acts is a book that is increasingly helpful to us as a church. It describes what life was like for the church in the midst of a hostile pagan society, with competing religions, with... uh, an unsure course. And that describes much of what the church is experiencing today. And Acts 12 is especially heartening to us because it reminds us that in the midst of all of the craziness that the world can bring, that we can know one sure thing. God is in control. And that's a great comfort to us because we don't like to be out of control, do we? I'm about to, next week, make the, I think, legally mandated trip to Disney World that every family is required to take in America. And one of the things that I will not do is ride a roller coaster. I guarantee it. I don't like not being in control. That's what a roller coaster is like. I know I'm not in control. I'm pretty sure the young man swinging the stick back and forth, he's not in control. Probably some engineer somewhere 20 or 30 years ago that designed it, he might have thought he was in control. So I just avoid the whole mess. Wouldn't it be nice if you could do that with life? If you could only travel in places where you knew that you were in complete control. But God doesn't do that for us. Whether it's Worrying about which college you're going to get into, or how the job is going to go, or the upcoming test, or how the pregnancy will work itself out. We have to realize 
that we must cast our entire selves upon the Lord. And we see that in many ways in this story this morning. In Acts chapter 12, we're going to see four things. I tried to make them a bit easier to remember. You'll notice it. First, we're going to see persecution experienced by the church. Persecution experienced. And then we will see a great prison escape. Part of the persecution is the imprisonment of Peter, and we will see a great prison escape. And we will see that in the midst of these activities, prayer is being extended by the church of God. Prayer extended. And then finally, we will see God show us that he is in control as we see pride extinguished. Persecution experienced, a prison escape, prayer extended, and then finally, pride extinguished. So what is happening here in this persecution? I want to just briefly remind you that this is a critical time in the life of the church. Remember that the Gentiles are just now being brought into the church in full force. Peter has been with Cornelius and has reported back to the Jerusalem church. And after hearing his report, they've said, well, I guess God's granted repentance to the Gentiles also. And all God's people here say amen as Gentiles. You also may remember that a prophet came and prophesied that a famine was coming. And so the church at Antioch took up an offering much as we will do after the service for special needs. They took up an offering and they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem so that they would be able to assist. And right at this time, about that time, Luke tells us, we don't know exactly, Paul and Barnabas are either packing their bags or they're, or they're getting on the donkey to go down or they're still in Jerusalem, but right about that time, as the Gentiles are coming in, as famine is coming on, as things are hitting fast and furious, right about that time, Herod chooses to persecute the church. Now, who is this Herod? Maybe you are confused as to who this Herod is, and you would have good reason to be, because there are not one, not two, not three, but four Herods in the Bible. Let me see if I can very briefly remind you of them so we have a picture of who this is. The first Herod is Herod the Great, known for his modesty. This is the Herod who was alive at the time that Jesus was born. This is the Herod who was cruel, murdered his own family to secure his power, and who also killed every male child under the age of two, hoping to kill our Lord Jesus. He died shortly after our Lord was born in what we think is about 4 A.D. And then he was followed by Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who killed John the Baptist. As you can tell, he was also a kind and compassionate man and full of good morals. If you can't tell, I'm being sarcastic. This is what the Herods are like. We have a murderer and then another murderer and a philanderer. There is a fourth Herod, other than this Herod that we see here, Herod Agrippa II. We will meet him in Acts 25 and 26 as Paul comes before him. But right now, this is Herod number three, for those of you keeping score. Herod Agrippa I. 
And Herod Agrippa was a man who was raised in Rome. His mother sent him to Rome partly to be cultured, but partly for protection. Because to be a young Herod was to have a target on your back. The next guy wanting to get at the throne would take out the child. And so his mother, who was of the Maccabean line, she was Jewish, even though his father was not, sent him off to Rome, where he became fast friends with two young future Roman emperors, Caligula and Claudius. And then when he comes back to the uh, ancient Near East, when he comes back to Palestine, he is in with all the authorities. His two good friends are the emperor. And so his, em- his kingdom begins to expand. He gets authority over Jerusalem. He is expanding his kingdom back to that of his grandfather. Now, this is important to know because Herod was a political man. He was half Jewish, and so he had Jewish sensibilities, but politics was his thing. And so what he decides to do is to try and make a political ploy here to please the Jews and consolidate power. And what better way to do this than to execute one of these annoying Christians? And he picks someone who's high up in the hierarchy. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Now, little does Herod know, in the midst of all his political machinations, in the midst of all of his thoughts and plans, that as he picks someone that he thinks he has picked perfectly, that our Lord Jesus Christ predicted this. In Matthew 20, verse 23 our Lord reminded James and John that they would be baptized with the baptism that he had been. Namely, that they would be persecuted and killed. So even in the choice of the martyr, God is completely in control. Now, this is hard for us to grasp, I think, because we look at a man like James and we see him and we say, here's a leader in the church, a vibrant man, part of Jesus' inner circle, He's a young man. He's in perhaps his 30s. This is a man that has a good life ahead of him. He's got a lot of ministry ahead of him. He could do such good work for the church. Why would God let James be martyred? The answer, I think, to us is, thing as it is, that God doesn't always do things according to what we think best or what we think most efficient, or what we think he should do. But that doesn't change the fact that God is in control. But Herod, on the other hand, is raging against the church, and this is kind of a trial balloon that he is floating. Let me see what happens. I'll kill James, and we'll see if the people respond. And they do. James is killed with a sword, which tradition tells us from the Talmud is the way you put someone to death who leads others to a false god. So Herod is playing the Jewish angle here. I'm putting James to death because he's going against the God of the Old Testament, against the God of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the people lap it up. And you can almost imagine Herod almost the way you might see modern politics. He'd have his press secretary come in with the stories from the Jerusalem Post and the Nazarene Gazette and say, they're saying great things about you. 
I think we're really on a roll here. I really think we might want to try the fall of persecution. It's got a good ring to it. Let's, let's try and find some others. Let's persecute them. It'll build up our base and we will have a strong political position. And Herod, who is shrewd, says, you know, I think that is a good idea. Who do we get next? Wait a minute. Peter. They don't like him anyway. And then you can almost imagine one of his more military commanders saying, uh, Lord, we've tried that once. No, actually, we've tried that twice. Has it worked? And Herod would say, well, but you don't have me. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to do this right. And so he grabs Peter and imprisons him. And it looks like everything is beginning to fall apart. James has been killed. Peter is scheduled for death right after the Passover. Maybe the church is going to fall apart. Where is God? Have you ever felt like that? All of the things coming upon you, and you shake your head and you wonder, God, where are you? If you're human, I know that's true. The psalmist feels that way at times. And so Peter is grasped by the authorities and they are going to make sure that nothing is going to happen. They're ready for a potential prison escape. They put him in maximum security lockdown. Now, they don't have electronic doors and keys and such, but they've got just about as good a security as Alcatraz. They set him up with four watches of four soldiers each. That's what the squads are. Why would they do this? Because that would mean that during the evening and the night, each group would only have to be on duty for three hours, less likely to fall asleep. And just to be certain, what they do is they chain Peter's hands, each one, to a soldier. So if Peter scratches his nose, the soldiers know. And he sleeps on the floor, probably between them standing or sitting in chairs. And then outside the the prison cell, there is a gate at which there is a sentry. Outside that, there is a second gate with another sentry, all fresh and on duty. Outside both of those gates, there is a third gate that the sentries don't even have the key to. Do you get the picture? Herod's not taking any chances because, you see, he cannot kill Peter during the Passover celebration for fear of upsetting a joyful mood. It would be like putting someone in the electric chair on Christmas Eve. Just doesn't go with eggnog and caroling. And so he's got to wait, but he also wants to bring him out with all kinds of pomp and circumstance after the Passover and get the biggest spectacle he can get out of Peter. Now, he's done everything that he could possibly do, except count on God. And so we come and we see Peter here bound between two chains, asleep on the floor. Now, I have reminded you of this before, and I will continue to remind you that we need to read our Bibles carefully so we don't miss things. We would gloss over this. Yeah, soldiers. Yeah, okay, Peter's sleeping. Okay, where's the angel? Think about this. Peter is scheduled to be executed the next night. He is bound in chains 
chained to two soldiers. And he's asleep. I think he really believed what he told us later in his first letter, that we are to cast all our cares upon God because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. He is sound asleep, as we'll see in a minute. He is able to trust God so much that he will not be disturbed. And God comes and delivers him. He comes in, nothing can be attributed to Peter. The angel appears, light flashes. All of a sudden the guards are either asleep or unaware. And Peter is freed from his chains. And it's almost a humorous story, isn't it? Peter is so sound asleep that the angel has to literally whack him. The word there is not a word for tap. Some of you, maybe you've done that. Maybe in, in, uh, in your families, one person is a sl- stronger sleeper, a sounder sleeper. And you need to get up and you do one of these. Honey, honey, wake up please. And after a while, if that doesn't work, you give them one of these. Wake up! Whoa! Where am I? Who am I? What time is it? That's what the angel does to Peter. He is so sound asleep that the text actually says he strikes him. Commentators are sure to tell us that the angel didn't hurt him and he didn't have a big bruise, but he struck him. And Peter gets up, and we know this because he's groggy. He's walking about in a fog. I had a close friend that the rule was you never called him when he was asleep because he could not be woken up except for by the phone. And he would wake up the phone and he would, as you talked to him, he would say yes until you stopped talking. And if you didn't, he would switch to no. Because the only thing he was trying to do was get you off the phone. And then you would talk to him later and say, um, Bill, don't you know we agreed to? No, I have no idea. You called me when I was asleep. That's what Peter is like here. He's groggy. He's following the angel. He's actually experiencing kind of what it is like to be delivered by God. You know the famous hymn from the Wesleys? I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose and went and followed thee. I think the Wesleys were reading Acts 12. Peter comes out, and miraculously the gate opens. And he's out in the street. The angel does everything. This is how God grabs us and brings us to himself. If you are here this morning and wondering what all this Jesus stuff is about. And what it means to be saved. And what, what we need to do. And how you can get a hold of this. You need to look at Peter. Because what you need to do in a very real sense is nothing but follow the initiative of God. God will flame your light open with light. God will break your chains. God will lead you out into freedom and liberty. And he will do this by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be free. And if you don't know this freedom... You are like Peter. You are waiting for the execution day to come. And you may be sleeping soundly because you don't care or you don't know what's coming. But God wants to remind you that there is a day of judgment coming. 
for all of us. It's why Peter will also remind us to make our calling and election sure. Even those of us that profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ must cling to Him with every fiber of our being. So Peter makes the great escape. And he does it in a way that I think should be encouraging to us. Do you notice that God rescues him at the very last minute? Why not day one of the Passover? The Passover was a week long. Why not the day before the last day of the Passover? You know, kind of like sometimes in a football game, the final field goal, they kick it on third down just in case there's a mistake. They've got an extra down. Why didn't God try and get at this earlier? You see, the point is, God is trying to do this in a way not that maximizes Peter's comfort or Peter's safety, but to maximize God's glory. And that same way is the way he acts in your life and in mine. The struggles that we have often are so that God's glory can be seen. So Peter is freed, it is spectacular, and he gets out. And we see here in verse 12 that he realizes, finally, that he is free. He's probably rubbing his hand. I don't have chains. Maybe he's doing like I do when you wake up from a deep sleep. Okay, I am awake. Pinch. Ow. Okay, I am awake. I'm free. What do I do? And his first thought is probably, i got to get out of Dodge. <laughs> Or they're going to put me right back in. But he realizes there's something more important than being free. He realizes that the church needs to see him to know that God is at work. He probably, in, by intuition, knows that they are praying for him. And so contrary to his own safety, he goes to the first place that the authorities would look. The worship house. He goes to see the people of God in Mary's house, because they need to see and know that God is in control. And so then we have this kind of vignette where we cut back to those who are in Mary's house. And we see that they have been at work as well while Peter is being rescued. They have been at work with prayer extended. Now, do we remember that they were praying? Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, who is praying? Look at verse 12. It is a corporate gathering of the people of God. This is important because the weakest link in the modern church is the prayer meeting. Right? We just don't spend enough time praying together, even if we pray separately. There is a power in corporate prayer, and it is not in the multiplication of numbers. It's not, well, we have 50 people praying instead of two, so God will really act fast. It's about praying together and being encouraged by each other's prayers and by each other's dependence upon God. And so the very first thing the church does is they gather together and they pray to God. They don't hope, they don't scheme, they go to God. And there is a great fervency in their prayer. The text describes it this way. It says that they were in earnest prayer in verse 5. Now, I want you to get an idea of what this means. This word for earnest 
is a related cognate, a related word to when you stretch out to try and get something. There's an illustration of this that will immediately bring it to your mind. This kind of prayer exactly is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweated great drops as of blood. He was in earnest prayer. So the people were gathered together, they were praying to God, and they were earnest in their prayer. I want you to notice what else they do. It's something you're familiar with. How are we to pray, Christ Church? Particularly, aren't we? They're praying and they're not praying, Oh Lord, please help us in persecution. Oh Lord, please lift up our downcast spirits. Please be with our body. No, they are praying, Lord, please help Peter. He's in prison. He's chained to guards. You've helped him before, Lord. Help him again. They're praying specifically. Look at verse 5. They are in earnest prayer for him. There's a reason why we pray particularly. It's because that's what focuses us upon the work of God. And so they are at prayer. And what happens is what happens sometimes in a modern prayer meeting. Maybe you've been in one of these. It's a prayer meeting. Everyone's around the circle. Someone's praying fervently and you hear this. And you're thinking to yourself while someone else is praying, would somebody please shut the cell phone off? And someone else is thinking, should I answer the cell phone? Should I walk outside with the cell phone? What do we do with this interruption? That's what's happening here. Peter has come to the door and he's knocking. Now, this has got to be really hard for Peter. You know what kind of a guy Peter is, right? He's the guy that goes and walks on water. He's the guy that says, Lord, I'd die for you. He's the guy that grabs the sword. And he is at the door and he's got to knock like this. Hello? I don't want anybody else to hear me. I'm on the lamb. Hello? And you can hear, they hear this knocking. And they're saying, who's going to go get the door? Would somebody please go get the door? And my sanctified imagination has that they're sitting in the room and Mary looks up and gives Rhoda the signal, the high sign. Okay, all right. So Rhoda, the maid, the servant girl, goes, and she goes to the door, and the knocking, and she says what we all say, right? Who is it? And Peter either is knocking and saying, please, open the door, open the door. It's Peter. Now, Peter has a voice that you would recognize. He's been preaching to them. He's been teaching them. She hears the voice. And this is almost like a comedy. She comes up to the door. She goes to either open the door. She opens the latch or listens. Hears it's Peter and goes, it's Peter. And she takes off. And Peter says, um, still here. Bad guy's still out here. Please. And she comes running. It's Peter. It's Peter. He's here. And this church of the living God who knows the power of God and believes in the power of God and prayer changes lives, they look at her and with one accord they say, you crazy. Are you nuts? That's literally what they say. 
It's a very staccato kind of thing. They say, you are nuts. And she says, no, I'm telling you, it's Peter. And the text, the way it is written, this is not two sentences. This is a back and forth. I'm telling you, it's Peter. I heard his voice. How do you know it's Peter? I would know Peter's voice. Come on, he stayed here with Mary. I would know his voice. You don't know his voice. It's somebody doing an impression. What, what? And they're going back and forth and back and forth. And then they take a different tact. They can't convince her, surprisingly, that she's crazy. So they say to her, you know what? It's an angel. You know, like the stories we tell kids, it's a guardian angel. It's, an, it's his angel. So they move from craziness to condescending. And they're having this debate. And all the while they're having the debate, Luke is giving us such great color. Peter's sitting there, please, anytime soon. He just keeps on knocking. Now, why is all of this put in front of us by Luke? I think it's to teach us that sometimes, as fervent as we are in prayer, it's unbelieving prayer. We need to stop kidding ourselves that we are free from the phrase, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we need to not beat ourselves up about that. Because Bible people do that too. Apostles do that too. But God is gracious. Rhoda doesn't give up. Peter doesn't give up. And finally they say, okay, let's go to the... All right. And they see Peter, and what do they do? They immediately start screaming and yelling, It's Peter! Oh, my! And Peter's like, literally with the hands. Shh! The text says he waved his hands in front of them to be quiet. The cops are right outside. Come on, shut the door. I don't know why you didn't listen to Rhoda. And I don't know why you didn't open the door. But let me tell you what happened. And he tells them what happened. And they see that God is at work in their midst where they didn't think it was possible. Think of what worship would be like the week after this. Think about what the capital campaign would be like the year after this. Think about what anything they undertook to do would be like after this as they realize the power of God in spite of their unbelief. Do you believe in that kind of power of God? If you do, you will not lay awake concerned at night about the faithfulness of the American church. You will not lay awake at night wondering about our government. You will say that God is sovereign. He is in control. I am before Him. He will take care of the rest. This is what happens. And then an interesting thing happens that Peter just fades out of view. He doesn't do a book tour. He doesn't sign books. He doesn't have How I Escaped, the journal version, the pop-up children's version with pop-up angel. He doesn't do any of this. He just simply fades into the background. We only see him one more time in Acts 15. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that he went off to another place and he went off so secretly that we don't know where he went. Some people think Antioch. Some people think Corinth. Some people think Rome. We don't know. We do know this, wherever he went, he brought the gospel with him. What a miraculous escape. So we see God involved in the persecution, in the escape from prison, and even in the prayer meeting that would have failed. And then finally, God sets up a bit of a contrast for us to see his power in a raw way. To see it in the pride of Herod extinguished. Herod reacts to this the way you would expect 
Herod to react. These four dumb soldiers have just blown his shot at consolidating power. And so according to the ancient rule of Roman law, if you let a prisoner escape, you got the punishment. And so Luke uses another colorful euphemism. It says that Herod had them led away. Pew ominous music. So they are taken off, examined, which in Bible times means tortured, and put to death. Herod is not a happy man. And he does what unhappy pagan kings do all the time when they're really upset. They take a vacation. Where can I go on vacation? I will go to Caesarea on the sea. What a lovely place. And they love me there. So I think I will go there and I will just relax. I will unwind. I'll forget about all this Peter business for a week or two. So he goes off to Caesarea, which is a magnificent city. It was built by the Romans, a huge port city. The Olympic Games were held there. The seating had a kind of a velour on top of it. It was a rich, wealthy city. Probably better seating than you can get at Minute Maid. More comfortable, more cushioned. And so he goes there to pass the time, Luke tells us in verse 19. And there are two cities that want his ear because they're having trouble. They want peace. And so they get the ear of his chamberlain, basically his chief of staff, and they say, we need to have peace. And Herod says, well, this will be fun. I can't, it'll take my mind off it. I'll have a festival. He has a two-day festival. The first day is in honor of Caesar. We'll praise Caesar. But day number two, that's Herod Day. And on day number two, Josephus tells us, Herod comes out in royal robes that are, from top to bottom, shiny silver. Like tinfoil. Blinding. So much so that he looked like a god. And he comes out in this resplendent outfit and he is magnanimous and the people are adoring him and he gives them this wonderful oration that they dutifully clap. Oh, wonderful. Best we ever heard. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, it's the voice of a god. And you can imagine Herod sits there and he says, well, they love me. Well, maybe I am sort of like a god. They are little people. And immediately, God strikes him down. Does it remind you of another king? Another one who looked out over another great city and said, look at all that I have built, Babylon the Great. And God struck him mad. You see, no matter how powerful you are, God is more powerful. That's what Luke is telling us. And Herod dies a painful death. He basically has some kind of very bad tapeworm. For five days, Josephus tells us, he writhes in agony and then dies. Now, why do we get this tagged on to the end of this great, fun escape story? It's because God is reminding us from the beginning of this chapter to the end that there are always tyrants in the world. There always have been. Pharaoh, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans. And there always will be. Christian, we will face tyrants. Because there always are sinful tyrants. But God will always be victorious. There is no need for us to fear. We don't need everything to be perfect. God is in control. He is moving all of the pieces. And He has His eye 
upon us. All of this is in the plan of God. And we see that in conclusion in this last little bit of chapter 12. All of the persecution, all of the prison escapades, all of the fanfare of the oration and being struck down boils down to this. Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. In spite of all of this, God is growing His people. God is growing His work. God is growing His word. The language there is a continual kind of language, bit by bit, piece by piece, week by week, month by month. God is building up His people. Do you have that hope? Or do you think all hope is gone if November 2nd doesn't go the way you want it to? We should throw in the towel. Or if a certain Supreme Court case cuts the wrong way. Or if something happens in the economy. You see, God grows His church, quite frankly, not just in spite of difficulties, trials, and persecution, but because of it. We need to seek the Lord today. Rest ourselves in His hands. There, we're safe.